Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. No, stop. Stop the music. We have something to celebrate here, and we need the right music for it. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Myers is a premiership player. Go for it, eight trombone playing Benjamins. As I continue to establish the Americans watching the footy multiverse, there's podcasting Benjamin, editing Benjamin, eight trombone playing Benjamins. Don't know if we have any alternate universe Ethans yet, but we live in the universe where the Cats are 2022 premieres, and we're here to talk about that on Americans watching the footy. I am Benjamin Castle with Geelong member Ethan. That's right. I am about to apply some of my team store discounts on premiership merchandise. There's going to be a lot of stuff getting shipped across the ocean. But I just want to go back for a moment to what I said after round nine. That was their last loss when they just looked lifeless in the fourth quarter against St. Kilda. Not just the fourth, it was the third quarter too. I had said this team has a high floor but a low ceiling. They're going to finish somewhere between like fourth and sixth. Probably win one final or, you know, maybe lose an elimination final. And I wasn't the only one who was pretty pessimistic at the time. Rudy Edsall had some old tweets he dug up from then, you know, where he was saying this team clearly isn't a premiership contender. And then they just played pretty much elite defense the entire rest of the way and just never lost again. I believe the way we say that when we make really bad judgment calls like that is shut the fuck up, you moron. The thing is, I think this was totally warranted at the time. Oh, I do too. Just like how we were confused as to why Rowan was in ahead of Parfit before the qualifier. We needed reason to be shut up. And the Cats defense provided that. You know, if you think back to round two, when Sydney and Geelong played at the SCG, look at how many pieces weren't there for that game. Most importantly, Sam DeConing wasn't in. Patrick Dangerfield wasn't at his best. Brian Myers hadn't played his first game of the year yet. I like Sam DeConing's new hat. I like a new hat. Ah, yes. Made him look even more like a clown, honestly, but in the best way. We'll dive into the grand final in just a second. Just a couple news items to get to first. Less news in terms of trade movement this week because the stories have largely been elsewhere for multiple reasons. But after the Brisbane Lions had their season ended, Dan McStay officially announced that he wanted to go to Collingwood. That is going to happen 
It's definitely not any sort of like-for-like like move for Collingwood. I'm not sure exactly where they're going to put McStay into things. Are they wanting him to become that key forward that they don't have right now, really? He's only an inch taller than Ash Johnson, but as I said last time when we were giving our Collingwood postmortem, they need another steady, tall target other than Johnson because it's going to free up both of them at various points. And I don't think the solution is exclusively putting Darcy Cameron or Mason Cox back there. I mentioned this a few weeks back. It's going to be an interesting situation for Collingwood with them bringing in a couple somewhat versatile talls in McStay and Billy Frampton from Adelaide. Frampton is a piece that I'm not exactly sure how they're going to fit him in either. And they've also got Bobby Hill coming in too. The Giants confirming this week that they will be making that trade happen. And one more trade piece. Rory Lobb's manager, agent would be the term probably for us in the States, does think that Lobb will be on the move to the Bulldogs. Between thinking that Frio are currently driving up the price and also that they may need to move him as well as Griffin Logue in order to make way for Luke Jackson's big contract. Go back three episodes to listen to our Frio postmortem where we give more thoughts on that front. On the coaching front, Tom Brown had thought Adam Uze was a possibility for Essendon. That's Tom Brown, though. Also, Uze coached at Hawthorne for six years. Yeah, so he... His stock may not be so high at the moment. We don't know if he's been named in anything in the review, but I'd imagine that every club is looking at people who were at Hawthorne at that period with trepidation at the moment. Remember that Chris Fagan has taken leave. He and Alistair Clarkson have both categorically denied everything. We were waiting for a denial from Clarkson, and now we have one. So that story's far from over. But in terms of Essendon, Ethan, who are they looking at now? Brad Scott. Before Ken Hinckley, Brad Scott was the longest tenured coach at a single club to have never made the grand final and had a couple good teams with North, but wasn't able to ever get them over the line. Remember, Scott has a position with the AFL now. He's the general manager of football for the league, so he's in charge of got overarching stuff with umpires, laws of the game, match review. So he's been the focus of a lot of weird decisions and poor decisions from the league this season. The buck often stops with him. Gil McLaughlin said last week that he doesn't think Brad Scott's going to return to coaching, but other than Uze and James Hurd, what other candidates would be wanting this job? I feel like we've heard everybody else say, no, I don't want in. And I've been saying since the way Rutten was shown the door, this was going to be a hard job to fill. When you do your own people dirty like that, people don't want to work for you. And again, totally warranted. If Uze is to come in, sounds like there's heavy potential for him to bring along Mark Williams, another Melbourne assistant who, all the way back in 2004, was the premiership coach for Port Adelaide. He's a coach who I quickly learned a lot about when I came to know the game, just because I was learning about Port Adelaide's history in 2020 when they were running at the top of the ladder, and kind of looking at some of the kicking innovations and just the training work that Williams did. You saw the positive impact he's had on the D's. So if you're looking at the value of assistance, you got a couple huge ones there for Melbourne. I just want to take a moment and mention an AFLW thing, which I don't usually do. It's usually not something that's super high on my priority list. Though I want to make sure I get more into it during this men's offseason. And the Eagles are a building team who gave Frio a tough game in the Western Derby. It's just tough for me because it's a time of year when there's a lot going on, especially now that I actually have a full-time job. But I do want to mention 
I saw a couple clips from this past weekend with the Crows playing, and I have a new favorite player. Her name is Jess Waterhouse. She was a soccer player and converted over to football, and she's just not built like a typical athlete. She's not built like a soccer player or football player at all. It's a little bit like the uh, sort of Harry Schoenberg build, and I'm in favor of that. You know, we're in an era where athletes more and more look like athletes, and we don't have enough people of just, like, all these different shapes and sizes. So, I'm a fan. Anytime you can watch someone who's not the normal shape, such as Mac Andrew, I'm in. It's clear that AFLW is suffering from the lack of state-level play, especially for a couple teams. The growing pains for the Swans and Giants are going to be really strong without a team in VFLW or any close equivalent in New South Wales in particular. Well, even if there's one player for you to watch in AFLW, I'd recommend Essendon's Danielle Marshall because she's American, and she actually made her way in through the USAFL, and I guess that provides a segue into our grand final discussion because I was at a USAFL team's watch party in San Francisco for the for grand final night. The Golden Gate Australian Football Club the Ruse, the Iron Maidens, their men's and women's teams, respectively, have a really good relationship with one of the bars in San Francisco, Buzzworks on 11th Street. They had their trophies, their jumpers up there, and sounds like they had about 400 people for this grand final watch party. I'd say it was about a two to one crowd in favor of the Swans, and they were quieted pretty quickly. It was probably about half and half, I'd say, Americans to Australians between the makeup of the playing group for Golden Gate, and also that there were a lot of Australians in town, a lot of them in the tech industry because of Dreamforce, the big conference that Salesforce puts on. I was talking to a couple University of Melbourne faculty members who were there for that. I assume they were doing their typical thing, you know, as one does at Dreamforce, promote synergy. Like a mouse. Hopefully they didn't shit on Deborah's desk. Like a mouse. I never liked Like a Boss nearly as much as the other stuff. It was pretty good. Uh, so that is by far the most people with whom I've watched a game of footy live before that. I think the record for me was three. That being myself, Ethan, and Dad. Ethan, you watched the game with um one cat. Correct. And I kind of held him against his will for a while. There were times when he wanted to go out and I basically only let him out at halftime. It was only right to have him in here to see Grian Myers become a premiership player. Is Grian the cat starting to understand the significance? No. He will. He will. But this game went just about as perfectly as I could have asked for. Geelong 2013-133 to Sydney 8-4-52. after a quarter. The Swans did basically play an even second quarter on the scoreboard. Cats outscored them 21-20. And then... Sydney actually really controlled the flow of play in the final few minutes of quarter number two. Got two of the last three goals of the second quarter. And I was just thinking at that time, this is a John Logmire team. I expect them to do the right things in the second half and make this a competitive game. But one thing that was going against the Swans was that Sam Reed had gone down yet again by then. Reed had a groin injury that took him out of the prelim at halftime, and he was subbed out shortly after the second half started in this one with Braden Campbell again coming on. 
Now, Sam DeConing had been put to task against Reed for a lot of the game, and that matchup had gone into Koning's favor, but for Sydney's sake, it meant that he was at least occupied. Reed not being there in the second half meant one fewer prominent tall target, and Hayden McLean was nowhere near that sort of ability, though he did have a one-armed mark and goal in the second quarter. But you can't compare those two players. Geelong had done a really good job kind of bunching all of the Sydney forwards into one area, keeping them all toward the goal square and just kind of crowding him in. And their defenders reliably won out. And when the Swans did get one-on-one time, Cats held their own. I was very skeptical of Jack Henry being put on Buddy again because of how swimmingly that went in round two. Worked this time, though. Buddy also just wasn't his typical self. Missed a few overhead marks. On one hand, he had very few opportunities. On the other, if you're not getting those chances, you've got to find other ways to insert yourself into the game. And Jeremy Cameron has done a great job of that when he's been shut down. And credit to Robbie Fox, one of the few swans who really showed up. Fox handled him really nicely. When Cameron's not able to take forward marks, he inserts himself, you know, outside of the forward 50, usually in the forward half somewhere. Sometimes he'll even move into the back half briefly, but he'll do things in the middle of the field that make him valuable, even if, you know, the opposition completely shuts down his goal-kicking ability. And Franklin did nothing of the sort. Isaac Heaney, same deal. Although Heaney, I guess, popped up on the ground elsewhere, but just very poorly. Took him getting a mark in a set shot, which he did convert in the second quarter for me to hear his name. Took me until the second quarter to hear Luke Parker's name as well, and Parker had a much better second half when Patrick Dangerfield wasn't tied to him nearly as much. But Dangerfield winning out against Parker all over the ground and especially off-center bounces was crucial in the Cats getting all the forward time they did. In terms of goal scoring, Cameron only managed a couple goals in the fourth, and that first one only came when Patrick Dangerfield was his signature unselfish self. But yeah, Cameron was very quiet this game. You know who wasn't? Tom Hawkins. Got the first two goals. A couple people around me were celebrating a lot because they had Hawkins getting the first goal as part of their bets. And to get those first two goals, Tom Hawkins outworked the other Tom H, Tom Hickey, who got things together a little bit as the game went on, but was just outdone physically so much. And I did not expect that. In a game with a lot of guys named Tom, the Cats Toms were clearly superior. I will say Hickey was forced to do a lot more than usual with Reed out and McLean being a clear step down in a lot of ways. Meanwhile, the Cats just went with Reese Stanley in the ruck basically the whole game. He had Mark Blitzoff's lining up right at stoppages in that center six, but he hardly had to go up for any ruck contests. Definitely has been a redemption year for Stanley and Blitzoffs. A given for Blitzoffs with him being an All-Australian. And a former steeplechaser. Ooh, yes, of course. Glad you mentioned that this time instead of me. But Stanley was the player you highlighted more than any other as needing to be far better this year for the Cats to contend. And there you have it. Geelong's season ended the same way it started. Absolutely beating the shit out of a guy who's usually a really good ruckman on a Saturday afternoon at the MCG. Remember in round one, they took it to Sam Draper. So anyway, third quarter, you're thinking, all right, Swans are going to make this a game. Here comes their push. That did not happen at all. Mitch Duncan Duray holding the ball on Tom McCartan, who just had an awful game. Well, that's part one of Tom McCartan's issues. Duncan, who's probably the next Cats captain at this point. 
I still think Atkins is a possibility. Atkins in just his fifth year going in? Yeah, maybe you want someone who can do it for a long time instead of, you know, just go off of seniority. Well, regardless, Duncan got that horn in the ball call and converted on that. So it's rare enough to see one Tom McCartan mistake leading to a goal. Then he had another that led to the second goal of the third. Wasn't even a minute later. McCartan intercepted an Isaac Smith kick at the end line. One of the few times Smith didn't finish the job on the day. But McCartan clearly didn't see the best player in long sleeves in the entire AFL. Yeah, this was like an uncharacteristically lazy play from Tom McCartan, who usually doesn't do dumb stuff like this. Close intercepted, and the Cats were off to the races for there, got the next four goals to finish the quarter. Scoring for the quarter was 39-1. to It was over sometime midway through the third, I think. Yeah, those first two goals were huge, but Smith got his third goal to make it 80-26. to Then Cam Guthrie got one after tackling Oliver Florent, who was also nearly invisible in this game. Dangerfield handball to Stengel for his third, and sometime between the Smith goal that made it 80-26 to and the Stengel goal making it 93-27, to you knew it was done. And then, I loved this. The fourth quarter, you know, the guys on Chaps Chat Cats talk a lot about the culture at Geelong, usually kind of jokingly because it's kind of overblown. Is it as overblown as the Bloods culture? I don't know, but I'll tell you this. One thing that I do love about what they're doing at Geelong is whenever a game gets into a blowout, instead of trying to pad someone's individual stats, they spread the ball around as much as they can to everybody. You know, you had Dangerfield giving one off to Cameron. You had Brandon Parfit coming in for Zach Guthrie and then... All of a sudden, Brad Close had really the exclamation point of the day, a party trick over-the-head handball to a running Parfit in the goal square. Then Dangerfield would have had a goal, but Sam Decoding camped out on the goal line, marked it, and scored his first career goal, which was really funny. And then Joel Selwood had the moment that's going to live on. He scored off of a handball sequence that included Smith and Close, riding off into the sunset as you want to. The whole team got around him. He was emotional. Hawkins was arguably even more emotional. It was just a super cool moment. And, I mean, having watched this team for three years, you know, it doesn't have, like, the same level of emotional impact as if, you know, I've been here the whole way through over the last two decades. But I can just imagine, you know, connecting this to other sports, Like, imagining, man, what it would have been like if, you know, the San Jose Sharks had actually gotten one, you know, with guys like Marlowe and Thornton. So, pretty special moment. Pretty great way for it to all end. I really wanted to keep Tom Papley off the scoreboard, but frankly, I think him scoring a goal with less than 30 seconds left and cutting the lead from 87 to 81 was way better than him doing nothing. I believe we have a record for the most subdued Tom Papley goal celebration ever, and I love it. Scott Dooley tweeted out, Papley's so versatile. It's rare a player can be a dickhead at both ends of the ground, but he's got it. What other players can I think of like that? Braden Maynard? When does Maynard ever get into the offensive end, though? He does on occasion for some longer kicks. It's pretty rare. Going back to Selwood, though, 16 years, 355 games, the first four-time Geelong Premiership player and winning as a captain with a child on the way. 
and he's been open about trying to get a family started for a while. I feel like it's lined up too perfectly. Also, in 2009, Tom Harley retired after winning a flag, although he had the chance after 07. In 2011, Cameron Ling retired after winning a flag, so... The shot of Cameron Ling sitting in the front row clapping after a Stengel goal was pretty good. Yeah, Ling there with his kids, a few Cats fans around me seized on that at the bar. They were in full voice for the whole game, and the song was sung pretty loudly at the end of it all. Really makes me wish I was at this thing, but considering that I had work to do after the fact and wanted to have Ryan Harambe with me and wanted to be able to, you know, take notes and watch this thing where I could actually hear the broadcast, it was probably worth it. Could What was the audio like over there? Did, you know, could you hear everything? Or Yeah, audio was fine. At the same time, though, it's not like you would have been able, you know, if you miss something, you're not able to rewind. That's Yeah, that's a big one. And in terms of audio... I'm more than made up for you by screaming for Brian Myers. At various points throughout the game, when he had his bad kick, when he had another chance, and then when he was awarded the medal. Speaking of that bad kick, where he took a shot from kind of the right boundary from about 50 that missed everything instead of trying to find a teammate, the Caps made so few poor plays that stuff like that stands out, that you can count like each individual negative play. Like there was one where... Deconing, and I forget which other defender didn't communicate, might have been Buse, and they ended up not marking and led to the Swans getting their first goal. That was from Will Hayward, who I kind of expected to get that first goal. Had I done any sort of in-game bets, that would have been one of mine. But it was just such a complete performance, and to do that two straight weeks is unbelievable, especially to do this against a team that's given you a lot of trouble the last couple of years, a team that's got talent to match up with you at just about every spot. But this was not just, you know, the defense getting it done. This was a great offensive game as well. Stengel was everywhere. But if you want to look at what brought this team to where they are now versus where they were, you know, after round nine, five and four, just look at the amount of really, really good defensive players and the fact that almost all of them have been healthy and at their best. Just Going down the list, you know, you go Tui, Kolajashny, DeConing, who's immediately established himself as a top-tier player. There are very few players who have established themselves on such a high level as quickly as him. I mean, Nick Dacos, I would say, but there aren't many that can do what he's done. Buse was quietly consistent throughout the latter half of the year. Him and Kolajashny both. They were really the pieces that rounded out this group because there were stretches as you were. Kolajashny just made some stupid plays. And he cut that out. Perhaps the best thing for him was that he didn't score the first goal in this game. That's true. When he's, you know, the three games he scored a goal, the two against Sydney clubs were losses. And he scored the first goal in the GWS game last year as well. Yeah. But Kolejashi definitely had the more visible impact over the course of the back half of the season and the finals when compared to Muse, but both were so important to the Cats defensive efforts there. Far from the first players you think of, but as you said, they definitely do complete those ranks. And it makes me think of some of the ways that we had privately talked about Melbourne last year, where you had Stephen May and Jake Lever and Christian Salem doing that work, but everybody else did the work as well. The difference between this Geelong team and that Melbourne team, this was less of, you know, a super rigid system. The one thing was that during finals, you know, they would send a Ruckman 
back into the defensive 50 after a center bounce. It wasn't like there was any other like groundbreaking tactical stuff there. It was just being really good. However, Chris Scott was also much more tactically sound in general this year than in the past couple years. Actually playing to his players' strengths instead of trying to kind of jam a square peg into a round hole. Learning from the mistakes of years past. Not just having him bomb kicks into the forward 50 and try to take contested marks. Utilizing the speed. I think just bombing into the 50 and looking for contested marks, I might at this point just call it Melbourneing or good winning because, boy, did that not work for them this year. Very accurate on so many deliveries leading up to set shots. Just a lot of good straight kicks into 50 or crossing to another side of the 50. Notice that consistently throughout this finals run. Isaac Smith, of course, was a big part of that, either being on the receiving end or helping deliver that a couple times. Rounding out this group, Zach Guthrie, more on him later. Mark O'Connor did a solid job, didn't have a ton of prominence in this game, but was pretty reliable. Tom Stewart, who was actually one of the quieter players, but I think just his presence is so big, even if teams are dead set on not getting intercepted by him, because if you're not kicking it at him then you're going to have to deal with someone like DeConing or Henry or Guthrie or Cola Jashney or Buse. And uh, Mark Blitzoff's defensive ability is pretty incredible. Again, wasn't seen as much this game, but wasn't required. O'Connor, by the way, seemed like he had been going to James Robottom a decent amount in the first half, was able to cut Robottom off at some of those stoppages where he has done so much damage throughout this season. I had been saying to you, and I think I mentioned it on multiple episodes leading up to the grand final, if there's one person that I wanted to see the Cats tag, it would be Robottom. I initially said, I want someone like Selwood on him at stoppages, but with Max Holmes going out with a hamstring injury, it opened the spot for O'Connor. O'Connor and Zach Toohey, by the way, the second and third Irishman to win AFL premierships following in the footsteps of the Swans' Ty Canelli from 2005. And Canelli, of course is still Swan's assistant. So he got to witness all this. I'm surprised there haven't been more yet. I'm just amazed that there are two in the Geelong Premiership 23. And hey, someone who used to be listed with the Cats was part of an All-Ireland Senior Championship. Brian's former roommate, Stefan Okumbor. Got it done with Kerry, where Ty Canelli and Mark O'Connor are from. I just want to add on with the Holmes situation. I think he could have played, but it was more of a... We don't want to put ourselves in the spot where, you know, there's a good chance we have to use the medical sub on this one guy. As opposed to the Swans, who said, yeah, let's do that. Look, even if Sam Reed hadn't played, even if he had played at full strength, the Swans were not winning this game. At the same time, John Longmire was outspoken in his postgame pressers that he did regret the decision. I mean, I'm not sure what kind of impact Logan McDonald could have had because I have had many doubts about him, but he likely wouldn't have needed to be subbed out. Two straight weeks that very good coaches realized things after the fact against Geelong. The last couple days have been super fun. You know, the game itself was fun. The celebrations after seeing Sam Marfoot being so heavily involved was awesome. Joel Selwyn made sure Sam got onto the ground, got a chance with the Premiership Cup. Then Jeremy Cameron gave Sam his medal to wear for a bit. So Jeremy Cameron's medal has been with Sam Morefoot, and it's also been with a cow. I don't know where that cow is, if it's in Geelong, because I don't think they went all the way out to Darkmoor. That just physically would have been impossible in the 
timeline of everything that's been going on. Especially because they came back for Mad Monday with the Geelong pensioners or whatever they are. That was incredible. So I didn't really know about Mad Monday before this. I had known about it just because there are stories from leagues elsewhere of the havoc that teams often wreak. I mean, there was the story of that team that did a couple really unsavory things after a terrible season where they actually got relegated from their division. You remember that story from a few weeks back? But the Cats took it to the next level. The coordination with most of the older players, basically it was anyone who's on the older side that's been with the club for a pretty long time. So even though he's a little bit older, Jeremy Cameron didn't really qualify for this, though he had a chicken suit on. You know, in hindsight, I'm surprised Jeremy Cameron didn't try to put the premiership medal on a fish. That may happen at some point. I think it would just sink. I mean, it would probably be after the fish was caught. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe he'd try it at an aquarium or something. I'd like to see it. Maybe if they name a fish Jezza or something. Anyway, a lot of the players you've probably seen by now, unless you're part of you know an American audience that doesn't have a ton of exposure to Australian media, which was kind of our target audience to begin with. Players dressed up like retirees, you know, the hair, the clothing, everything. And there's a great video of them all getting out of a van from a retirement home. Looks like Patrick Dangerfield was leading the way. He was the one who was the most visible part of it, opened the door. And then Isaac Smith fell, and I have to think that was intentional. Oh, that was totally scripted. No, that was all according to plan. They had Isaac Smith with his walker falling. It was phenomenal work. You know, I'm sure it's going to be like a long, full day of drinking, but to have it preceded by like a coordinated entrance, well done. The, the creativity here is off the charts. And it's so different than American football, where we really lack creativity. Watch any NFL game if the defense... If there's an interception, you know, they have to go take a photo in the end zone. They put in that camera at the start of the 2020 season. That It was already a thing even before that, though. But every team had it by 2020, and it got old very quickly. So between that, um, Tyson Stengel and Jed Buse taking turns as DJs. Oh, yeah, speaking of Tyson Stengel, Eddie Betts is part of a championship coaching staff now. I was saying at the watch party... Eddie's got to feel like he's a premiership player right about now with everything that he and his wife, Anna, and their family have done for Stengel to help him out. Was listening to Stengel's interview with Channel 7 on the way back, and he was just heaping praise on Eddie as he ought to be. Eddie Betts is good for footy, and it's really nice to have a club connected with him, and it's really nice that he finally got to not only be part of a premiership, but be a significant part of it because Stengel really took this forward group to the next level. The leading goal kicker in the grand final with four, the Cats definitely did share the wealth. They had 11 goal scorers. Shame Grian wasn't one of them. That would have been that would have been nice, but... Kind of the one thing that's missing from this game. I guess Gary Rowan scoring multiple as well, but not like it was needed to confirm victory. Just an amazingly thorough ass-kicking of a damn good team. And we'll get into the post-mortem segment in a bit, but I don't think the Swans need to overreact here. Because I still really like where they are as a club. I think talent-wise, they're loaded, they're young, and just the biggest obstacle is overcoming the mental side of, you know, you lost the grand final, you got humiliated. And if they can ensure that that doesn't weigh them down next year, they're going to go a very long way because they're a damn good team. Also, if I had to rank the 18 clubs in terms of, you know, 
which ones I like the most. The swans would be right around the bottom, but I gotta say, I earned a lot of respect for their supporters that stuck around, not just through the end of the game, but through the whole ceremony. That blew me away, the number of swan supporters that stayed for the ceremony, because I can tell you, if I'm in a grand final and my team loses, I'm staying until the final horn, but the moment the siren goes, I'm making a beeline out of there. Other than this, the only time where you typically see fans sticking around for a trophy presentation when their team loses is when it's the Stanley Cup in the NHL. And even then, there are going to be some that duck out. I'd be on the fence with that. I think it would depend on who it's against. If it's against a team I can tolerate, I'd stick it out. I'd just stick it out regardless, because when's the next time you're going to see something like that? Also, huge credit to Dane Rampey, who gave an awesome speech. You know, it's tough to get up there and do more than the boilerplate quotes after you lost the grand final, but he had such nice things to say about Joel Selwood, plus, you know, going above the required stuff with, you know, apologizing to the fans for not playing well. So super impressed with that. I gained a ton of respect for him, and I already liked him as a player. Things have gone to a new level on that front. So Dean Rampey, tip of the cap to you. I guess it's stat time, so I'm going to give some happy Geelong stats. I wonder who we're starting with. Norm Smith medalist Isaac Smith, who, by the way, lost his grandfather earlier in the week. He made it out to see him while he was still with it mentally and put on an incredible show. Three goals, a behind, 32 disposals, 14 score involvements, 12 marks, 771 meters gained. Leader in disposals, leader in ground gained. He was everywhere. No relation, by the way. And maybe that has to be what we call him from now on. Isaac, no relation to Norm Smith. The first person with the last name Smith to ever win a Norm Smith medal. I also want to mention, you know, I've talked, and I said this after the Brisbane game, how sometimes Isaac Smith looked like, you know, the shopping cart with a wheel that's off and it has to be steered in the right direction. All four wheels were very much on the right track in this game. Patrick Dangerfield, 27 disposals, 19 contested possessions, 13 score involvements, 9 clearances, Six assists. A lot of that coming straight from center. And 468 meters gained. Dangerfield won the Guerriers medal with by earning the most coaches' votes during the final series. Remember, the grand final votes get a 50% boost. So Dangerfield ended up with 12 votes from the grand final. Add the 10 from the prelim, and he's your winner over Jack Crisp of Collingwood despite no boost, and a few players, including Jordan Degoe, right behind that. I thought Degoe's finals performance, as I've said before, was awesome. First two games, yes. Prelim, his play kind of went with the rest of the team. Mitch Duncan, a goal off 27 disposals and 13 marks. The goal again coming off a holding the ball call. Joel Selwood, a goal, 26 disposals, 8 marks, and he was only on the ground for 66% of the game. Mark Blitzov's a goal, 23 disposals, 8 tackles. Jeremy Cameron, 2 goals of a behind, 18 disposals, and 8 marks. And again, that was with Robbie Fox defending him quite well, which is a testament to Cameron's ability. Those two goals did come in the fourth when, you know, things were definitely looser by then, but consistently got important touches throughout. Brad Close, 2 goals, 18 disposals, 2 assists. Jake Kolajashny, 17 disposals, 11 marks. Tyson Stengel kicked 4-1, and Tom Hawkins cooled off down the stretch, 
but finished with three goals and four behinds. He did more than enough. Just, again, complete team performance up and down the roster. Really can't ask for anything better than this to finish off the season. Cats also won hitouts 44 to 24 and committed 19 fewer turnovers, 57 to the Swans 76. I mean, with this defense, you know, you're going to force a lot of turnovers. So as long as you're not giving the ball away in the middle of the field, you're in pretty good shape. Tackles evened out down the stretch. It ended up being just plus nine for Geelong, 65 to 56. But for a lot of the game, it was plus high teens or something like that. And that's insane given the forward time that Geelong had. And efficiency inside 50 in terms of getting off shots, 53.8 for Geelong. Anything above 50 is sensational. 40.6 for Sydney on the cusp of pretty damn bad. But again, that's mostly credit to Geelong for playing the right way, getting those forwards in a crowd where they're less prominent. And the shots where the Swans did end up kicking goals, they were mostly longer shots. Two of those came from Chad Warner, who was one of the only Swans that really showed up. 29 disposals, 18 contested possessions, 10 clearances, 8 turnovers, 583 meters. Warner knows no off switch, and I don't think these were just garbage time stats. No, he was legitimately really good, and if there's an award to be given out to the best player on a losing side when his team gets the crap kicked out of them, he would qualify for it because he did a great job. Robbie Fox with 26 disposals. To think he's still on the rookie list with the kind of performance that he put on this season, clearly just a very late bloomer. Luke Parker, 23 disposals at 14 tackles, but non-existent in the first quarter again. Dangerfield outworked him. James Robottom with 16 disposals and 8 clearances. Mark O'Connor limiting him quite well. Those were the only guys that you could really say consistently showed up for the Swans other than Hickey being present in ruck contests, but consistently not getting the best of them. If you're talking positive impacts, those are the guys. The rest of them would show up on a milk carton, although I don't know if, you know, missing kids get put on a milk carton or if that's just an American thing. Now, here's a question. How do they advertise missing kids in Canada? Because it would be really hard to do on a bag of milk. I'm really glad Australia doesn't take after Canada there. Milk should not be in bags. There was an awesome tweet from the Victoria Police. They posted, We're preparing to assist NSW police in the search for 22 missing swans, last seen wearing red and white at around 2.30 p.m. in the Melbourne area. How long will it take them to find Buddy Franklin, who would win the anti-norm if it existed? I'm just disappointed Geelong supporters didn't rush the field, because it would have been a really great way to stick it to them. I can't see that with how corporate the grand final crowd is, but that would be fun. And had they matched up in a prelim, you could have seen it. You know, I like Buddy. I respect what he's done for the game, but to shut him down head-to-head, especially after being on the receiving end of career goal number 1,000, feels damn good. Jack Henry's got to be on top of the world from that alone. You know, it could have been one of those things where when they were making the game plan, maybe Henry just stood up and said... I want him. That might have happened. You know, you've seen players in other sports do that, whether it's basketball, American football, baseball with pitchers sometimes. You know, you say, you know, a guy got the best of you earlier in the season. You want another shot at him. And I'm not sure if that was what led to Henry getting the assignment again. I imagine there was a contingency plan if it didn't work. 
The contingency plan was probably to Carling. But Henry did a great job on him. We're going to pause for a bit to have our quick ad break here because we're trying to make money. When we come back, we'll give some postmortems like we did for all the other 16 teams, probably shorter postmortems for both the Swans and the Cats in that order. As always, you can find us at Americans Footy. You can find me at Castle Media. You can find Brian Harambe on Instagram at CatNameBrian. You can find me on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Maybe I'll be talking some more about the West Coast Eagles. It'll probably just be a lot of college football. Went from watching the footy with 400 people on on Friday night to being at college football the next afternoon and uh, success there. Cal beat Arizona for the first time in 13 years. Which is really sad because Arizona football is not exactly a powerhouse. I mean, much improved, but... Jay Knott's pretty amazing. Look up this guy. J-A-Y-D-N Ott, O-T-T. Before we go on to these postmortems, I also want to mention, in terms of the grand final entertainment, it seems like for the halftime, they're trying to emulate the Super Bowl from 20 years ago and are throwing the kitchen sink and are just doing the kitchen sink approach. Did not land. However, pregame... Excellent. Robbie Williams was damn good. I really don't know much about him because I don't have the international music background that Benjamin does. I had known about Robbie Williams because I know that he was in Take That, which I discovered, I think, from the 2012 London closing ceremony. Williams wasn't performing in that, but went back, learned about him, and he always entertains. I mean, he flipped off the camera doing the opening ceremony at the 2018 FIFA World Cup in Russia, but when he actually wants to sing instead of just dancing and letting backing series of the crowd carry it, he's got a damn good voice at 48, and with everything he's done, that's pretty impressive. And the duet with Delta Goodrum was solid, was originally Kylie Minogue on that track, and then also dedicating Angels to Shane Warne and the stadium singing along was pretty special. You know, I like the big performance being pregame rather than halftime because... I've talked a lot about how stupid the concept of Super Bowl halftime is. So a normal NFL game, halftime is 12 minutes. It flies by. College football, halftime is 20 minutes. And that's enough time plus a little bit if both marching bands are performing. Because I'd say marching bands should get about seven to eight minutes. I'm looking at it not so much from the entertainment perspective, but from the actual sport perspective. Because here's the thing. A 12-minute halftime, you go into the locker room, you sit down, you say about three words, and you got to go back on the field. 20 minutes, you've got enough time for the head coach to say something, and then the various position coaches get into their groups and do whatever. You can actually achieve something there. And that's how long footy halftimes are as well, 20 minutes. I just think about things from the marching band side because that was me. So your typical NFL halftime is 12 minutes. There are some TV games where maybe it'll be like 15, and then, you know, for the most important game of the year, we're going to make it like three to four times longer. That that sounds like a good idea. The only other thing that I can think of is the is like Thanksgiving Day halftime sometimes having performers, but no, it's ridiculous. So I like the idea of the big part of the entertainment being pregame, especially because it doesn't mess as much with the player's routine. Like, they probably got off the field from pregame warm-ups earlier than usual. And other than that, the only difference really is, you know, everyone goes to sit down to take a photo after running out. Hmm. So you're able to still kind of have the 
regular flow of a game, which is good. It's a shame that the grand final sprint was pregame, though, and also, why the hell were they running around the 50-meter arc? Is it because Colgate was sponsoring it? It's shaped like a smile. I think that was actually the reason. Also, Ethan, your man won it. Hugo? Oh, yeah. You didn't even watch? They showed a quick recap of it at quarter time. You know what? At quarter time, I think I was cleaning Grimes' box. I think that's what I was doing then. I was doing something at quarter time. I'm pretty sure I was cleaning poop. I did see on some of the pregame coverage that Charlie Kernow won the longest kick contest. He did not clear the river, but it's a good 62 meters. You know, a lot of the guys who would have done well in these competitions weren't really in it because they were, you know, playing in the grand final. I'd like to see Zach Toohey in the longest kick at some point. I'd like to see Zach Toohey end up going to the NFL. I wanted to be a three-code player at the end of his AFL career. I am all in support of this. Jeremy Cameron can kick some decent barrels as well. And then I would like to see Brad Close in the sprint. Or Brian. I mean, Dangerfield's already proven his record in that. Shannon Neal was the Cats representative. And while I think he's got a chance to be a really good player, I don't think of a six foot eight guy as someone I'd want in the sprint. Although Mac Andrews only a couple inches shorter and I would like to see him in that because, you know, I really like watching him run. The Swans representative was Corey Warner, Chad's younger brother, who I believe was mistakenly given coaches votes during the season, or at least they must have put it in incorrectly on the AFL website. That was a good for a laugh. Well, there was a thing with that. You know, During the Brownlow, they had showed you know, a graphic where someone had gotten credit for votes that shouldn't have. So it happens. It's cool. I guess... We'll eulogize the Swans pretty quickly here. You know, recapping the actual season, we can keep brief. I want to talk more about the positive and negative surprises. You know, with both Sydney and Geelong, it's hard to find a negative surprise. But the Swans went 16-6. and six. They won seven straight to close the home and away season. Three of those wins were over finals teams. The others were against four of the bottom five, but that did include snapping Collingwood's streak and a 53-point beatdown of the Bulldogs. And the next round, they beat Frio in Perth, and it was only a 17-point win, but that game was theirs throughout. It's a shame I missed that game live, really, because that was when Dad and I were driving up to Oregon for the World Athletics Championships. We drove very late at night. And I was watching Geelong Carlton more closely, obviously, so... I mean, I still did go back and get the gist of that one. That might be another one to put on the list of games to rewatch during this offseason. I'd also thrown, which others did I list in that? I had mentioned, I think, North Melbourne against Adelaide from round 22. Just a few random games that at some point when I've got some time to kill, I'll just throw on. Swans went 9-2 and two at home, plus won their home final, the Two home losses came in back-to-back weeks to the Lions in round seven, which, all right, sure, it happens. And then the Suns in round eight, which I think threw a lot of people, including us, off. And at that point, the Suns had entered at two and five, so that one really caught us off guard. And then it started making more sense as the season went on for both teams. It's still not a game I would expect the Swans to lose. I mean, I also didn't expect them to be beaten so much out of the bye, even at Port. It was a much improved Port team by then, of course, but 
They lost by 23 in that one, and they were outdone in their forward 50. Rebound from there, smashed St. Kilda, then lost it the G to Essendon? That was when Essendon were really at their best form. And, you know, that's a big rivalry. It's a game that usually has a way of being close. It wasn't at the SCG, so I expected that to be a close game. I just didn't necessarily expect the Bombers to pull through. And that was the Swans' last loss until the Grand Final. The biggest concern I'd had with the Swans all year going into this game, and I had really been thinking about this after the prelim in particular, and during it as well, once Sam Reed went down, is they lacked those strong contested mark guys in the forward 50, other than Buddy and Reed, who was out. Tom Hickey can take a rare one here and there, but Logan McDonald hasn't built his way up to be that guy yet. And I don't think you want to be throwing Patty McCartan forward with his concussion history, even though he did kick a goal in the grand final. And that was a moment of which I was appreciative. They've got a real issue to fix there. One of the few holes on a very sound team. Now, definitely the most critical of their holes, especially with the youth they have across the rest of the ground. Tom McCartan is still on the young side. I mean, Patty doesn't have all that much AFL game experience, so he's got a lot left in him. Justin McInerney has done a lot of back 50 work, starting rebound play through the midfield. He got Golden, Warner, Nick Blakey can run absolutely anywhere. Options at half forward are plenty. So yeah, it's the full forward stuff that is concerning me the most. And that's something that a lot of fans seem to have picked up on. Now, Ethan, talking about our individual positives and negatives, we've given one for every team. Are we starting with the positive for you? Uh, Sure, I'll go with Nick Blakey. He's someone I had recognized before the season as not Callum Mills, and he runs a lot. Early in the season, I think it was really in the Geelong game, but as the year went on, you saw it again and again, just how many good sequences he started out of the back 50 that got them up to the forward 50. He's often a guy that takes those kick-ins from behinds, and while his accuracy on those tends to be all right, I think in order for the Swans to have their best setups, he needs to be the second or third guy to touch the ball, maybe taking the first mark from those kicks. Or at the very least, you know, against a team that's not going to pressure you much in the goal square, then you could get him running. My negative is someone that I've said a lot of negative things about in the past, and I'm going to do it again here. Peter Adams. We didn't see him these finals. Why was that again? Well, he had been playing some VFL, and then he took a really dirty, cheap shot in a game against Casey, and he got a three-game suspension, and that was the end of his year. My thing is, you know he's going to pull some shit like that. That's just his nature as a player. But he also didn't play very well when he was out there. And if you're not a successful player, you can't justify being a douche on the field. Speaking of being a douche, maybe not on the field as much as it is off. Going to jump in here because this is a news story that has broken during our recording. Jordan Ngoi has rejected his Collingwood contract offer over behavioral clauses. Is this going to be the new, like, Australia's comeback to the Kyler Murray homework clause? I think there's more to this than that. I just had to throw that in there immediately because you kind of have to at this point. Well, and if we're on the news stuff, I'm just going to interject real quick. There's a possibility Mitch Robinson's career isn't over, which is funny because he was, you know, in the lap of honor with the retiring players at the grand final the other day. But I'm up for more Rob Vlogs content. 
Dan Hanabry was as well, and there were rumors a couple weeks ago that he might not necessarily be done. But yeah, I just wanted to interject and say that quickly. Just get that out of the way. It's really hard for me to find a negative from the AFL list for the Swans. I mean, I guess it's Logan McDonald. He's only 20, so asking a lot of him right away. But again, with the struggles they have at full forward, they needed him to step up when it mattered. He couldn't do the prelim and then wasn't named for the grand final, although that decision is, of course, questioned by the masses and by Longmire himself. McDonald did have a couple prominent games this year, kicked three in the round 10 loss to Carlton and three again two weeks later against Melbourne, but kicked 15-16 for the year and just couldn't mark in contests like he needed to. So I'd love to see him be able to put on some more muscle and really grow into that role. And I would expect the Swans will start trying to trust him more and more with that. Otherwise, maybe he'll come back home to the West. In terms of positives, I looked a lot at Ali Florence play this year. He was moved back from his previous role. And like McInerney started a lot of their rebound work, was able to clean up a lot off stoppages, really good at taking the ball off the ground. When you've got him being able to do some of that in live play, combined with James Robottom at stoppages, and I would have considered Robottom to be my main person, but I've talked about him so much already that I wanted to discuss someone else. But when you've got those two with that ground ball work that they can do and then accelerating play forward, along with Warner running anywhere, Golden being such a smooth handler of the ball, and a really developing tackler as well. Again, there is a clear foundation for continued success for the Swans. And if they can figure out full forward, I would expect them to win a flag within five years. And for Chad Warner to have a brown low within that time, even without that. I had also considered Robottom, by the way. Could go with half the list at this point, honestly. And thinking about the forward situation for the Swans, maybe you'd also consider throwing Joel Amarty a bit more forward if McDonald isn't working out. I know Amarty had some pretty big goal hauls in the VFL, got limited opportunity at the top level this year. So I think it's going to be between those two in terms of who gets the spot first. You know, with Sam Reed being on the older side as well, I think his spot will open up soon as well as Buddy's. We know Buddy's on for one more year. Beyond that, though, that situation's wide open. As for the Cats, I mean, Ethan, you ought to be taking this one away. Yeah, the defensive group, I already talked about it pretty extensively. Tyson Stengel took the forward group to a new level because, you know, the Hawkins and Cameron combination, the Tom and Jerry show is great, but you needed a small to really complete that group. And Stengel has always had the athletic ability for it before it tore up the Sandful last year, guiding Woodville West Torrance to a premiership. But when he got things together in terms of his discipline with Eddie and Annabets helping him in that regard, everything came together for him. And him being there meant that you had something that the Cats hadn't had in our three years watching them. You know, part of putting Stengel up there meant a new role for Brian, kind of playing more half forward with a little midfield work. And it took some adjusting, but... Over the course of the year, he really grew into that role, and the Brisbane game, the preliminary final, really showed that he can stay in that role as needed moving forward. I'm really glad he finished the year so strong, because there were a lot of times when it looked like he was the guy to get dropped, and other than one game where he served as the medical sub, that never happened, and he rewarded the coaches for showing their faith in him. Yeah, we talk about him a lot for a lot of good reasons. And I was glad that the talk was positive for nearly the entire year. The midfield group, 
I still wouldn't say it's the best midfield group, but it was good enough to set everything up so that the forward 50 and back 50, you could just dominate. That was really the blueprint for success for this team, and it worked. All right, positives and negatives. It's really hard to find a negative when you won the grand final, finished the year on a 16-game winning streak. But I'm going to go with Quinton Narkle because I really thought he had a chance to continue improving offensively. I would have liked to see more out of him. Would have liked to see him out there more, but unfortunately, he's such a liability defensively that he couldn't justify getting in there. And I think, you know, a team towards the bottom of the ladder that could work with him and handle actually developing him instead of, you know, throwing him to such a cutthroat win-now spot could do something pretty good with it. The talent is there, especially on the offensive side, but he was definitely the one guy I could look at as a disappointment. Was subbed off round four against Brisbane. Only actually saw the field for five games this year. Was an unused sub for three more. I was really confused by his re-signing. I had wanted the Eagles to give him a chance. I had understood for a while that it was going to be a down year for West Coast. And having him come home and be able to have that sort of feeling out period, I was hoping that would work out for him. But didn't happen that way. Didn't happen at all. In terms of my disappointment, if not Narkel, it feels wrong to go with Radagolea, but he's the guy that has come to mind because I don't want to badmouth the retiring Sean Higgins. I also had such low expectations for Higgins to begin with that it would have been hard for him to do worse. It was just so hard for Radagolea to be able to crack his way into the team with his strong marking ability, but his kicking remaining questionable and things being so solid especially as the year progressed defensively. So there was no real spot for Asava to make his way in. I would expect he tries to move on, and I wouldn't blame him for it. Because some club that does have a bit more time on their hands for development, like would be the case for Narkel, could do some good with him. Counterpoint, Asava was injured for a lot of the year. I totally give him a pass. It's just so hard to find anyone else because when you're looking at who else you'd name... I mean, Menegola was injured a lot of the year. Dollhouse was a super sub. I would have liked to see him in there more often, but it was less his fault and more other guys excelling. You know who I'd actually go with instead of Radagalea, but going by that same criteria would have been John Seglar. But, you know, he was hurt a lot of the year too. Getting thrown in there against Tim English was tough, but he did not play very well in that game. He was better against the Eagles to close out the season. Oh, wow, the West Coast Eagles. I mean, if there's something the Eagles do have, it's good Ruckman, although that was, you know, without Nat Nui, but point remains. My positive, I kind of hinted at it already, Zach Guthrie, who last year I thought was such a huge liability. I had him down there with Lockie Henderson and Sean Higgins as, like, weakest members of the roster, and he put on a ton of weight this offseason, put on a ton of muscle, just became a really solid physical defender and a totally different type of player than his brother. And for the team not just trying to make him into another Cam Guthrie and let him be his own player worked out really nicely. And I don't think there was a single time this year I badmouthed him, which hard to believe after how frequently he struggled in 2021. For me, this was a year where I really understood the impact of Tom Atkins again. Not the greatest midfield group, a damn solid midfield group, and 
Atkins does a lot to complete that with his defensive work, especially with Joel Sudwood playing more sparingly because he's just old, skilled, but old. Atkins being able to close down lanes and get a lot of meaningful tackles did a whole lot for the Cats, especially when they needed to have some big fourth quarter performances to either close out games or have to seize the game in that quarter. He featured prominently against Collingwood, for example, in the qualifier in that way. Atkins really grew on me as well this year. You know, in past years, you could have kind of asked, what does he do? You know, not like saying he's bad, but, you know, it would be like, he just kind of isn't doing much. If you weren't my brother, I would have probably mentioned Brad Close instead, but you had shown me a lot of Close's value before this year. There are so many guys that you can go with on the positive side. Max Holmes really developing. How he wasn't named in the long list of voting for 22 under 22 doesn't make sense at all. That was wrong. That was just flat out wrong. Sam DeConing, kind of an obvious one, but talked about him a lot. I mean, you're talking about exceeding expectations for us. Kind of no better poster child for exceeding expectations right away. Tyson Stengel, although I didn't really know what to expect with him. And he set the tone from round one. You know, my impression of him, everything he had heard about him was, you know, he's got talent, just a matter of behavior. And obviously he did end up behaving. So, yeah, I would say it's a pretty lengthy list of pleasant surprises. One other guy who could have been listed on the negatives, if not for his finals performance, would have been Gary Rowan. As I said near the top of the episode, he shut us up. A 14-goal season, but only nine goals in the home and away season, but the three against Collingwood and two against the Lions. We've gone over the stats before. He kicks two goals, team's about a third more likely to win. It's up into the 80s. He kicks three goals, his team's only lost once when he's done that. He is the barometer, not Reese Matheson. I like Reese Matheson, but Gary Rowan has the stats to back up the claim. So, Gary the true barometer Rowan, I am going to stick with that. That's what I'm going to call him on here. And that brings me to one other point. You know, I'm so used to undeserving teams winning championships in American sports. And it's nice in all three years watching footy, the right team has won the flag. Oh, there's time. There's time. Someone will bullshit their way to it at some point. But, I mean, you look at this Jalon team and it was a dominant team that Got a couple of clutch performances in one tight final, such as Rowan coming out of nowhere after having a lousy season. But from round 10 on, this was the best team. You could even say from start to finish because they were on top of the ladder after round one. Ladder position, by the way, the Cats, Swans, and Demons were all in a top eight spot every round of the year. In fact, the Demons were never lower than fourth. The Swans had a couple rounds at eighth. The Cats spent rounds 2 through 11 hovering between 5th and 7th, mostly two of those rounds in 5th, the others all 6th and 7th, and then continued a steady rise, spent the last six rounds on top, and kept that going up through the grand final. Uh, With that, with that, I've actually got one more thing to mention. So, talking about Max Holmes reminded me once again of how stiff it is that He couldn't manage to get in for the game, and because of that, he doesn't get a premiership medal. I mean, I love that the 23 players and the head coach get presented the medals on the field, but there ought to be some sort of medal 
or something that's official from the league that that all the players get at least players that reach a certain criterion. I'm not sure what it is. Is it enough to just be on the list as a lot of people are saying, like how everybody who's played for an MLB team over the course of a year gets a World Series ring, even if they end up elsewhere at the end of it? I liked the idea you had mentioned a 15 game cut off. I was not the one to come up with that. I had seen it on Twitter and I thought it had made sense. One Instagram page I was following, I forget which, might have been AFL Central, suggested a 10 game cutoff. Something around playing in half the games, I think you gotta be eligible for it. Again, maybe not getting it presented on the field. Yeah, you know, present it on the field to the players who actually appeared in the grand final, but I think you deserve a medal if you're a prominent part of the team and appearing in half of your team's games, somewhere around half, I'm not sure what the exact number should be, but in the vicinity of half, I would say that that makes you pretty prominent. Wanted to touch that base before we, I guess, rounded it and headed for home. So this ends our kind of regularly scheduled episodes for a good while. We'll be coming to you throughout the off season with maybe some more structured episodes, doing some player profiles, just kind of at random, looking at some interesting stats. Do have one special thing for you that will be coming in one of the first couple off season episodes. Gonna do some goofy stuff like fact checking club songs. I had come up with that idea a few weeks ago and mentioned it on a prior episode, but um, one of those has changed a lot. Yeah, I don't think there's such a happy team at Hawthorne, as it turns out. As we wind down here, I just want to thank everyone who's tuned in over the course of this season, interacted with us, listened, whether it's through you know any of the platforms. Would really appreciate if you're listening via Apple, especially if you left us a rating. We hope we're worth five stars, but... Be honest, leave feedback, tell us what you think, and we're going to try to find ways to continue to improve and make this a better and better show. Hopefully over the off season, we'll also be able to get a bit more publicity, maybe from doing some collaborations. There are, a lot, there are some other great Americans who are in this field. You've got Frank Wessels, another very joyous Cats fan, a Yank on the footy out in Ohio. You got the fourth and long guys, including... A very probably downtrodden Donnie Hess out in Iowa. Dream guest, not just Mason Cox, but his dad, Phil, who seems to be completely obsessed with the sport. Perhaps a bit of a long shot to get Mason. And then definitely trying to get some Australian guests back on here. Rudy Edsel, we spent time with Shannon Gill from Code, who interviewed us. That helped us big time get a bit of a presence in Australia. Code's done some really good stuff again throughout the season. The one thing that I would really like to do more of, you know, one of my goals when we created this show was to really reach American audiences and make more Americans into footy fans. And so far, we've ex- we've totally exceeded my expectations with the Australian audience, but I think we've underachieved a bit with trying to reach more Americans. So I hope as time goes on, we're able to improve on that front. It may mean having to, you know, explain some stuff in more basic terms at times. But one of my goals with starting the show in the first place was I want to get more Americans into this incredible sport. And, you know, after a weekend of having footy, high school football, college football, the NFL, I can tell you I have so much more fun 
watching the AFL than I do watching the NFL. Even though this was an NFL week where just about everything went right. Ravens winning, Steelers losing, Raiders losing. Browns not losing because, well, they beat the Steelers. Niners losing, which would be more fun if it wasn't against an AFC team. Actually, one of the fourth and long guys is very happy because he writes for the Broncos block now. But yeah, with all the action going on in various forms of football at various levels, it's the AFL stuff that's sticking with me the most, and that's been the case throughout the year. So hopefully we can get more Americans tuned into this, and hopefully Fox Sports 1 will never cut off games early again. I could go through a football weekend, and it's just, you know, AFL and college football. I mean, high school football is great, but look, at the high school level, I prefer writing about basketball more than anything else. But he's great. And I hope that we're able to continue bringing in more audiences to this very goofy, very fun sport. So thank you so much for tuning in with us. This will not be the last you hear from us. We are going to be, like I said, recapping all sorts of season stuff. You know, throw in some more you know, player movement news. I'm sure we'll talk about the draft. Oh, by the way, Jason Johannesson staying with the Bulldogs. He's not going to the Suns. There's one for you right now. I still don't get why the Suns wanted to target him unless there was a coaching offer there. But, I mean, everybody's been linked to the Suns, so you expect that some of that stuff would fall through. More on that in the future. We, in fact, have been linked to the Suns. Yeah, Tom Brown hasn't gotten on that one yet for better or for worse. But for now, we need sleep. And I need to edit this, so thanks a lot for tuning in. Enjoy AFLW, because some of that's going to be on... Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2 as well. I'll try to tune in when it's on. Might try to tune into a little NRL as well. It seems like, you know, I don't enjoy watching rugby as much as I enjoy watching AFL or American football. But it seems like there's been some really good drama in rugby this year between State of Origin. On the Union side, Bledisloe Cup had some drama in the first game. The second one was a blowout in the All Blacks' favor, but... I love getting into the world of Australian sport. And of course, the footy is going to be the main way to do that. But it's awesome just learning about all this. Hopefully, we'll end up being able to parlay these connections into having some really fun Australian trips in the future. But we can think about the future all I want. I'm going to not think about anything for a bit because I'm working early. I need sleep. You probably do too. Thanks a lot for tuning in to these first, geez, 67 episodes two episodes away from a serious milestone.